Hello, I'm James, and welcome back to Black Thoughts, a project by Podcasting's Praxis. A little under a decade ago, a man by the name of Mark Fisher wrote an article. It was posted on Open Democracy, and the title of the article was Exiting the Vampire Castle. It contained criticisms of the approach to organising and to comradeship that he identified in the left. He identified what he saw as substantial problems in the approach of leftists to coming together and trying to decide on a direction and build a culture that can withstand capital, could withstand the predations of the system under which we labour. The article was flawed, and it contained several problems, even though it was well-intentioned. And because of the most fundamental of these problems, he was hounded after its publication. And ultimately, Mark Fisher took his own life. Today is my turn to talk about exiting the vampire castle. We'll see whether I reach the same destination as he did. I hope not. Today we're going to talk about language. Today we're going to talk about status games. Last episode, I introduced some of the ideas surrounding how status hierarchies are formed and about the divisions that occur within them that are necessary in order for a small group or even an individual to rule over many. I went over some fundamental concepts, ideas like identifying who you need, who holds the physical and active power, both to, for want of a better expression, police others, and also to produce, to actually do the active work in society. If you identify who you need, then you know who you actually have to win over. And as a subgroup of them, if you identify who it is who can bring force to bear on your behalf, then you're well on your way to suppressing a larger population using a minority of it. More than this, though, to make the system stable, to make your hierarchy secure, you need to make it a layered hierarchy. There have to be some people who gain some limited benefit, some release or relief, if you will, from the predations of the hierarchy that they then can inflict on others to give them a reason to uphold this order you've established. In short, you need to give the people doing the policing action some kind of freedom, something that's in it for them. And ideally, you so thoroughly divide society into a complex, dizzying array of Byzantine layers that no one's quite sure where their status truly lies, and they become predominantly preoccupied with trying to guard their status and advance their status, and constantly running around in circles trying to position themselves and understand their position. In short, it keeps them busy. It keeps them out of your hair. And if they're all arguing with each other for control of limited benefits, they're not likely to contest the system that structures those benefits. This is the really short version of the, the status hierarchy theory under which I work. Having said all of this, I want to change tactics, and before I go into this, I do want to issue some warnings. At some point during this, I'm going to be talking about language, and implicitly in doing so, I'm going to have to talk about some language that people may or may not find offensive. Now, I'm not going to be dropping racial slurs or anything like that but I am going to be talking about language which could be considered ableist by some. I'm doing this not because I wish to cause offence, but because I want to talk through the semantic meaning behind the words and 
more importantly, what they mean within a political, status-hierarchical context, right? Because words are ultimately contextual, and the use of words is a layer of that context that has to be understood. So, consider this an appropriate content warning, and I will put it in the bio for this episode as well. If you are a person of the left, and you are concerned, you are concerned about status hierarchy, even if you can't quite phrase it as status hierarchy, you're concerned about oppression. You're concerned about disadvantage, structural, systemic, systematic disadvantage applied to some groups. Then it behooves you to try and figure out a way to counter this. And there are many people, good people who aren't even particularly of the left, who recognise there are problems here and who propose solutions to this end. Um, to give an example, the affirmative action policies of higher and further education in the United States are an example of attempting to correct a perceived injustice in the organisation of a hierarchy of society. Let me unpack that a bit, right? In America, which runs on this myth of a meritocracy ruled by those who have merit, in order for this myth to uphold itself, people have to be able to rise to various levels in the status hierarchy based on their merit. And in America, the foremost means of demonstrating merit is through education, is through dedication to work, and is through raw innate intelligence, right? It therefore is a problem if certain minorities are underrepresented compared to their, you know, population figures within these establishments of further and higher education. And this is particularly a problem if you're trying to, shall we say, keep control of the overall status hierarchy by being seen to do work against racism. Therefore, the policies of affirmative action make sense, you know, try and increase the representation of people within um, these, you know, minority demographics at institutions of higher and further learning because that shows you're doing something about it, and that helps preserve the myth of meritocracy. And in many ways, it's not about actually correcting the fundamental structural problems, it's about managing the perceptions, which is why I said a perceived problem. Truth be told, if liberals don't see a problem, they don't really care about it. This is an example of attempting to correct what is ultimately a problem of structure and status by using an, an intervention that you're putting on top and saying, this is this is how we'll solve this problem, by giving people greater opportunities, by improving representation, etc, etc, etc. I'm not going to argue the merits of whether it's good or bad. I'm really not. I think it's well-intentioned, and at the end of the day, that's part of what matters, isn't it? In fact, most of the time, it's all that can matter, because most of us don't have power. All we have is the intentions. We would do good things with power, most of the time. If you're a leftist and you're concerned of status hierarchy, and if you are familiar with the impact of language and how language shapes the ways we think, you get into some interesting positions. And this episode is basically going to talk about these. It's going to talk about language, it's going to talk about the effect of language on politics, and it's going to talk about what this results in in a practical way. It might quite possibly make a lot of people angry. Because part of what I'm going to be talking about is how people play status games using political and politicised language. 
And if you play these games, someone pointing out your moves and revealing the strategy, so to speak, is in itself undermining to you. They work best when people aren't aware of what you're doing. Knowledge is a kind of power, after all. And so I want you to bear this in mind as well. And one other thing. If you don't listen to the main podcast, Podcasting is Praxis, you might not know it, but my pronouns are they and them. I am a non-binary person. I want you to bear that in mind because part of what I will be talking about comes from lived experience in this role. So, with all of this preamble out of the way, let's talk about language, political language, and politicised language. Words are symbols. They are symbols, they are proxies. When I say kettle to you, or teapot, or cup, you think of certain objects associated with this concept, but the words are not the things themselves. Kettle, when you really get down to it, is just a series of syllables formed from movements of my larynx and my lips. Kettle is a sound that your brain translates into an idea. And that idea translates into many different images, many different perceptions. There are many different kinds of kettles out there, but you understand kettles as a category. And in your mind's eye, you can picture different types of kettles, but you can also, if you will, have this broad concept, this shadow, this penumbra of all the things that can be a kettle is in your head when you hear the word. But the word inherently itself it has no meaning. Its meaning is entirely derived by context. To prove it, let's talk about the difference between a kettle, a teapot, and a cup. What do they have in common versus what do they have that is distinct? They're all conceptually related, but they each fulfill different roles. They're determined, the differences are determined a bit by function. Not perfectly, though. A kettle, as I understand it and would refer to it, is an object in which you boil water for the purposes of usually making tea, but not exclusively. A teapot, however, is exclusively for making tea, and usually you don't boil, you know, water in it. Normally you would boil it in a kettle and then add it to a teapot, except for some teapots that you do actually put on a flame and boil. And so on, and as follows with teacups. Most teacups you would pour tea into from a uh, teapot, but sometimes you make tea directly in the teacup. That's what I usually do. I pour hot water from my kettle into my teacup where a tea bag is waiting. Twinings, usually. The point is, there are semantic distinctions, but actually there are exceptions and it's very nebulous and it's a little confused. Primarily, you understand these things in their relationship to each other and to the functions they fulfill and the overlapping of these things. And when you call to mind the distinction between a teacup and a kettle and teapot, the distinction that's primary there is that you drink from a teacup, you do not drink from a teapot or a kettle, usually, except you can. There's nothing stopping you from drinking, you know, cooled tea directly from a teapot, or if you've made it up in a kettle, which sometimes happens as well, by the way, um, you could drink it directly from there. The, you know, the idea is that there is a, there's an underlying order and logic that's implied by the relationship between these objects and their use and how you see them and your experience of them. For example, concepts of what forms a kettle vary with class. If you grew up, for example, attending um, community functions where 
tea would be provided in a giant, like, firmly insulated kettle for everyone at the event to enjoy. You'll have a certain picture of what a kettle is, but it's very distinct from if you grew up in the upper class, in which case you probably won't have seen a kettle, you'll have only seen tea in a teapot, because the actual creation of the, the tea, if you will, happens, so to speak, off-camera, happens uh, downstairs among the common folk, and so on and so forth. Your understanding of the meaning of these words is radically different depending on where you stand within society. So understanding that language is ultimately contextual is very important because when we come to talk about language and when we come to talk about how it's used, what we're really talking about is the words themselves and the context. This is especially true when we're talking about language which has a status component, like for example, racialized language. There are some words, we're not going to go into details on this, you should be familiar with them, and if you're not, then look at any shit right-wing comedians, comedy specials. There are some words which are offensive when used by white people due to the historical associations which other people, of usually of the minority or status groups the words refer to, can actually use freely. This is because there is a context, an implicit context that's understood and that guides and denotes how the language is to be used. This is where we get into this idea of there being certain political language, certain terms that in the politics of our societies we decide must be used in a certain context and are inappropriate to use in other contexts. And the words can actually have a lot of overlap in meaning, but we've decided for various different political purposes, which we'll get into, they have a certain association to them and there's rules about how they get used. I'm going to give you another example. Oligarch versus billionaire. Now, an oligarch is a wealthy person who rules. Oligarchy is the rule by the rich. And... Um, you know, it, it kind of follows that the term oligarch lays bare the material arrangements. This is someone who is very rich, very wealthy, and they rule. We don't like oligarchs in our society. We don't say we have oligarchs in our society. No, heavens, not that. No, we simply have billionaires. And a billionaire is just a functional description of someone who's got a lot of money. Denuded, trimmed away, omitting the actual material relationship they have to the rest of society, which is that actually they effectively rule it. Their influence and sway over society is in proportion to the wealth that they hold. Our society is built to be ruled by the wealthy. They are oligarchs de facto. Whether or not they particularly exercise the power from moment to moment, they have it. But we don't like the word oligarch. Not when we're talking about ourselves. When we're talking about other nations, then we can use the term oligarch. But not about our own people, not about our own kind. Political language. It's all about status. Whether it's talking about hierarchies of race, of sex, of gender, where it's talking about hierarchies of class and profession within class and about tradition, whether it's hierarchies of culture, whether it's hierarchies of material condition that has not yet been codified but is emerging as being codified, as being stratified or whether it's talking just about naked power. It all revolves around status in one way or another, because status and power are so intertwined.
this means that language has a series of functions. It mediates how we think about things, and encoded within this language are political assumptions. The English writer George Orwell, real name Eric Arthur Blair, he wrote a whole series of articles on the subject of the role of language in politics. Now, George Orwell was a fairly flawed human being. He tried to be good in some ways, he fell short in others. I'm not here to mediate whether or not George Orwell was any good or not. I can't even decide for myself whether he was actually a good writer or not. Sometimes he wrote things that seemed pretty good, other times it seemed pretty terrible. His name, his reputation, they don't really matter. What matters is what he talked about, which is observably true, which is that politics is intrinsically tied into language in a fundamental way. And in the, the great novel that the right wing li likes to drone on about, which is 1984, um, which was, just to be crystal clear, he, George Orwell wrote 1984 as a criticism of totalitarianism and with an implicit kind of anti-Stalinist kind of bent to it you know, railing against the figure of Stalin and what he'd done to Russian society. It wasn't an anti-socialist text, it was more an anti-what Stalin and totalitarianism under Stalin did to the wider politics of a people and of the left. Anyway, I digress. He wrote in 1984 about this concept of changing language to change people's ability to think and to criticise what it was that they were living under. And the examples he gave in the fiction were very, um, you know, exaggerated, but I've kind of already spelled it out. The difference between oligarch and billionaire is that if you've never heard the term oligarch and you don't really understand the concepts that go along with oligarchy, etc., then it becomes very hard to criticise when all you've got to hand is billionaires, especially when the other side, who are fully versed in all of these criticisms, have prepared lines. Because if you're criticising people for being billionaires, what, you're, you're criticising them for just having a certain amount of wealth? Well, that seems kind of reductive, doesn't it? Um, what, where do you draw the line? Whereas if you're criticising people for being oligarchs, you're criticising the implicit use of that wealth to rule over others. Very different thing, right? Um, and it's much harder to defend oligarchy than it is to defend the existence of just these billionaires that exist in a vacuum without any power over society. And so in such subtle ways does language police things. George Orwell basically wrote a lot of articles talking about how language becomes political in this way and how the language that is, uh, shall we say, beneficial to power is the language it gets repeated. To this end, a little podcast recommendation. Um, there is a podcast called Citation Needed, which talks about how the media basically does this day in, day out how they take and reshape language. They do things like depersonalise it when they want to make it more bloodless, make the underlying horrors out of remove. An officer involved shooting, rather than a police officer shot someone, for example. How they talk about um, international aid as a mask for talking about arms shipments. Things like this. Um, I would recommend that podcast for anyone who's interested in how the media does us dirty on an ongoing basis. But the underlying theory is that they advance language that suits the political class and political causes that they themselves are beneficiaries of. That's their role within the status hierarchy. That's why they get paid. And if you're not inclined to play that game, you never end up in a role where you get to do that. 
political language underlies the world we live in. And if you're of the left, recognising the politics of language is recognising that language matters. That's what I'm really driving at. The language you use matters. How you talk about things shapes how you and others think about things. And to really drive it home on a deep level, I'm going to talk a little bit about philosophy. Now, I know people don't like generally talking about philosophy and philosophers because it seems very ivory tower and unremoved from the world. But philosophy, when done right, it, it isn't removed from the world. It helps illuminate it. It helps explain it. It helps you get an insight into why things seem to behave the way they do. And my favourite philosopher is a philosopher named Wittgenstein, whose name I've heard pronounced nine different ways, and if I've got it wrong, fuck it, I don't care. Wittgenstein had a whole novel set of philosophical ideas, and they were interesting ideas because they basically said that a lot of other philosophy was bullshit, and it was bullshit because it was bullshit arising from confusion. That by examining objects and, and situations and ideas, asking the wrong questions, you were only going to get gibberish answers. And that's something we can sort of relate to. If you walk into a situation and assume it's one way and then ask questions based on that assumption, you're not really going to get towards the truth. Whereas if you change your framing and look at the situation from a different perspective and ask questions based on assumptions which are more true, you're more likely to get a clear view of what's going on. Wittgenstein had a fundamental criticism that I found quite compelling. He had a criticism of the idea of the self and the soul as being distinct from our physical bodies and how that's buried in our language. When you're describing parts of your body, how do you describe them? The clue is in how I just said it, your body, a body that belongs to you. Now, if your body belongs to you, if you have your arm, your foot, your torso, your head, your tooth, your eye, if these belong to you, where are you? Like, if I take your arm away from you, and then I take your leg away from you, and then I take every individual part of your body away from you, including your brain, where is the you that does the belonging? Where is the ghost in the machine, if you will. The language seems to imply this other self apart from the body. It seems to imply that there's a you which does the owning, which is somehow separate from your body parts. There is a you that is a soul, maybe? But Wittgenstein described how this is a, it's an aberration of grammar. It's a mistake of words. We indicate someone's arm with possessives, in the same way as we'd say someone's car, someone's chair, someone's teacup, someone's hand, someone's tooth, someone's thought. We ascribe possession to this nebulous construct of a person that somehow sits apart from these things. But he suggested that this isn't the case. There is no separate being. It's just implied by the language we use. It's just implied by the way we talk about things which constitute a person. We could as easily say 
the part of you which is your arm. Okay, not as easily, it's actually more cumbersome. But it's perhaps more accurate, isn't it? The part of you that is your arm, the part of you that is your foot, the part of you that is your eye, that is your tooth, the part of you that is your thoughts. Suddenly, you become this summation of the whole, rather than this person apart, this ghost in the machine. Suddenly, there is no ghost in the machine, there's just the summation of all the parts of a machine being greater than the whole, you know? The sum is greater than the whole. You are more than just the part of you that is your arm, the part of you that is your thoughts, etc. You're all of these things in concert, and that's a much more beautiful symphony. But there we have the illustration that grammar, the way we talk about objects, the, the very structure on which words sit, implies certain ways of thinking about things, which has a, another implication to it, which is that different grammars can perhaps imply different ways of thinking, different concepts of thought. And the spooky thing is that there's actually some scientific evidence to suggest that this is kind of true. Um, there are certain peoples with certain languages that have more words to the colour blue than we do, and it turns out they are far better at distinguishing shades of blue than people without these words in their language, without these structures in their language, which suggests that partly your perception of reality is filtered or influenced by the language you speak, because the language shapes the way you think of and conceive of things and shapes how you interpret the information you view in the world around you. And so grammar matters, words matter, language matters matters. So to roll it all back, if you're on the left and you're aware that words are used in a political way, that they're used to shape hierarchy and to shape status, you're going to have to do something about words. You're going to have to do something about language. What are you to do to change the way people think about their relationships with each other? Well, you can start by looking at words which are used almost exclusively to demean and control. And you can say, hey, you shouldn't use certain words to describe certain people. They are essentially problematic. They cause problems. They are offensive words. Now, this is where most kind of liberals are at, right? And it's where actually most people on the left are at. They think of words in terms of whether or not they cause offence. And then they say, ah, well, just don't use words that cause offence. Except this is a superficial reading of the politicisation and political language and how it affects people. This is where an anarchist's take on language and politics can be quite useful. Because if we start applying status and hierarchy to this situation, it becomes much more clear how these words are functioning and how they're being used and what it is they achieve. So, let's go back to basics. You've got a status pyramid. It has multiple layers on it. And we'll keep it simple. And we'll not imagine lots of different types of oppression, like whiteness versus, you know, blackness, like um, wealth versus poverty, like um, male versus female. We will, we will keep it simple and we will just imagine a simple hierarchy 
of race, just for the sake of illustration. This hierarchy of race is arranged that the whitest of white people are at the top, and the darkest of people of black or other ethnic descent are at the bottom. Okay? The way this hierarchy is enforced and maintained is obviously about coloration, but it's also about the meanings that you attach to pigmentation and skin, which is ludicrous and arbitrary, but it's something people can identify at a glance. So the way words tend to develop is that language is used to convey contempt. And so a lot of the, the racially charged language that is used to demean people, what it's really doing is it's doing two things. It's identifying someone as belonging to a lower step on the pyramid, and it's insulting them by saying that that is wrong, bad, or worthy of contempt. It's the language of contempt. And it's language that's used to keep people on a lower level by socially reinforcing the hierarchy. That's why in any hierarchical society based on race, or any hierarchical society, whether it's, for example, straight versus gay, the societies will develop language that demeans people by pointing out their lower characteristic, bullshit, but they assign it, they'll point it out and assign contempt to it. And the social repetition and reinforcement, the use of it as an insult, as something that demeans, is what gives it its venom all the time. And it helps assert the pyramid. It helps assert the status hierarchy. And this is why, if you are on a lower level, the word doesn't quite have the same sting when you use it. Because, I mean, it's about you. You're describing your own position. And when you use it, Usually, you're not using it with a kind of contempt. How could you? How can you be contemptuous towards yourself? In practice, actually, yeah, there are situations where that can kind of apply. Um, the dubiously described comedian Chris Rock had an entire routine back in the 90s where he played a kind of status game and divided out black people, his own people, into different categories one of whom were black people. The other people were, well, he used the same racial epithet that had previously been applied to all black people, playing a status game. And I mentioned this routine because it's a kind of bid for a redefinition of status. It's changing how the language is used in an attempt to elevate some from a previous, you know, a class of oppression that affected everyone. If, in Chris Rock's routine, there are black people, but then there's the real racial epithet, then it follows that some black people can be emancipated, right? That's political speech, for anyone who's missing it. The attempt to redefine how the language is used changes how people think about the structural relationships, changes the particular axes of oppression and suggests, if we follow it through, that actually there should be some finer granulation, that in the logic of this joke he's cracking, some people are black people and that's okay, but some people are black people and they're not okay. It's punching down terrible language, awful. It's 
essentially attempting to use language to advance your own status at the expense of other people. And this is a crucial point that we're going to illustrate a little bit further later, because it kind of lies at the core of a lot of the problems I see in how the left tries to talk about language. But to kind of bring it back round and summarise here, it's not whether a word is in and of itself offensive that determines its kind of political use and its utility and how it shapes how people think. Yes, language that demeans is offensive and can cause offence to many different kinds of people, whether or not the word applies to them. But it's not the inherent offence that makes it bad. It's not that someone takes offence to it that makes it bad. It's what it accomplishes within a political context. In short, it's language that demeans a group of people, that puts them down, and does so explicitly to establish a status hierarchy. And it can be more or less offensive in its usage, depending on whether it's being used explicitly, intentionally to do that, or whether it's being used just to describe it. For example, it's possible to talk about certain words in a kind of dry way, explaining how they're badly used without actually using them that way. The difference between saying, listen, the following words are bad, and actually using those words, hurling them at people, or using them to demean people in an article in The Times. How language is used is part of the context of it. But the function to which it's been ascribed by society and the political context in which it's understood is bound up in it, which means that it's very complicated. So, if you're on the left and you want to solve the problem of status hierarchy, of people being demeaned, of people being denied opportunity and all the stuff that we know as racism, sexism, bigotry of any different kind, what are you to do? Well, what most people do is they try and think hard about the language they use. But we're going to dig into that because this is thorny territory. And because most people don't understand the underlying mechanisms, the politics and the political use of language to enforce a status hierarchy, because they don't understand this, they're kind of venturing off the known map. They're going forward without a real guide and just trying to, to feel the way along by looking at landmarks and looking at each other and trying to spot the road that's most travelled. The problem with going off maps is here be dragons. Perhaps, you think, the way to decide whether or not certain language is okay or not simply to ask the people to whom it applies. After all, they'll know whether something is demeaning and hurtful, right? And yes, they will. They will. They will know whether something is demeaning or hurtful. If you ask someone, hey, is it okay for me to, to use these kind of words, they'll pretty clearly tell you whether they're offensive or not. Now, important in this, it will be a personal judgment. But if enough people say it, that's what basically makes, you know, consensus, isn't it? If enough people say, actually, we don't like this word, that's what makes it a bad word that you shouldn't be using, right? That's, that's how it is. That's how it is, yeah? But there's a few flaws in this. There's a few flaws in this. 
And this is the area where we start to get into real thorny territory. Because this policing of language, where we decide some words are not to be used, and when someone uses them, you should tell them, don't use that language. And if they persist in using it, you should recognise they're not a comrade and exclude them, etc, etc. This is rocky territory that rests on assumptions. And the assumptions are in themselves kind of patronising and kind of blind and naive. And it's difficult to ford this area, to, to cross this river without getting swept up in it. I know there are going to be criticisms levelled based on the stuff I'm about to dig into. But I'm going to be honest about it. I'm going to be honest because people need to be aware of what can occur and to be wary of the pratfalls and pitfalls which await. On the left, we don't just police language, but we also try and take corrective steps to directly um, confront the manifestations of status hierarchy and the exclusion that goes along with it. What do I mean by that? Well, you know, we try and listen to people, um, you know, rather than just talking about X minority group, we talk to them, we ask them to speak up, we try and empower them to be heard, you know? We don't just say, oh, um, the Gypsy, Roma and Traveller community clearly needs X, Y and Z. We actually, in the you know simplest case, ask them what they need. And in the best case, we try and you know promote them to speak, try and get them to tell everyone what they need and treat them as equals so that they are made equals. That's part of what we as leftists try to do. And we do the same with every minority because we want to try and remove this status hierarchy as much as possible. At least this is the theory, this is the idea, right? We want everyone to be equal and to be equally enfranchised and, and able to participate in the democracy of our society, which means they must be able to equally participate in the politics of our society, which means they must be equally able to contribute and participate in the discourse of our society. Therefore, we, so to speak, try and give platform to people from minorities and from oppressed backgrounds as much as possible. So we police language and we also try and give people platforms. We invite them in, in one way or another, as we should. This is good. This is right. The problem is in the fact that not everyone is good. And not everyone is equally politically literate. What do I mean by politically literate? Most people don't know how to think politically about situations. They don't know how to think about interpersonal politics. And because they don't know how to think about interpersonal politics, they're very easily preyed upon by people who do. They're not able to think cynically. They're not able to think in terms of power and status, which is what politics really is about. It's about the means by which one acquires or terminates power and status. And thus it follows in status hierarchy where you stand within society. I mentioned earlier I'm non-binary. It's a minority. We are fairly oppressed in a few ways, not as oppressed as some, more oppressed than others. It's quite interesting in terms of hierarchy, 
there are arguments within the rainbow movement as to exactly where different people fall. For example, um, it's generally accepted that gay men have an easier time than lesbian women, and bisexual people, um, such as myself for the record, we sometimes face erasure from gay and lesbian people who find our existence complicating. The idea that you can be both straight and gay at the same time is uncomfortable to people who, in one way or another, build their lives on the identity of who they find attractive. Or who build their politics on that. Yeah? If your politics is built on a dichotomy of straight versus gay, bisexual people undermine the premise of your politics. And if you have accrued political power by playing on that dichotomy, bisexual people are a problem. I have experienced this. I have experienced gay and lesbian people basically saying that bisexual people don't exist. Because, well, some of them it's because of personal insecurities, but some of them definitely it's been because they find it politically inconvenient to have to talk about including people and about there being a spectrum between gay versus straight. It's much easier for them if they've got clearly defined boundaries, right? There's a political advantage in it, especially if they've built their expertise on being able to talk about the difference between being gay versus being straight. If your specialist subject is the difference between gay people and straight people, then suddenly this theory and this group of people come along and say, well, actually, everyone's a little bit gay and there's potentially everyone's a little bit straight. Suddenly your meal ticket is being undermined. Suddenly you might not get booked on to talk as much. Sometimes your organisation might not get as, uh, as many donations. It's a problem. And what do you do when it's your livelihood at stake? Right? In the same way... In the trans debate, there's a lot of discussion about where non-binary people fall. Because, you know, if you're cis or you're trans, those are distinct categories, you know? If you're cisgendered, which means you identify with the gender you were assigned when you were born. Like, they said, oh, that's a boy, and you grew up and feel like, yeah, I'm a boy. Whereas trans, you were assigned, you know, they said, oh, that's a boy, and you grew up and felt, oh, actually, no, I'm a girl, or vice versa. If your whole philosophy is built on a dichotomy of the difference between trans and cis, then non-binary people potentially are a bit of a problem there, depending on how you conceive of them. And the way I've seen most trans people incorporated, by the way, is just to say that if you're non-binary, you're trans, which is cool. And politically, I am right there. Politically, I am part of a rainbow coalition. I believe we all stand together or fall together. But actually, I don't feel like I'm trans. I feel like being trans is actually different from being non-binary. In my experience of it, and I don't insist that my experience of being non-binary is the same as anyone else's, I am comfortable with conflict and distinction. I don't need everyone to think of things the way I do. I'd much rather present my thoughts and have people make of them what they will, so long as it makes them happy. Kind of the point behind black thoughts, I suppose. The point is, here you get this first glimmer that actually within the left, within oppressed peoples, there are status games and power plays that take place. And just because someone is part of a minority, and just because someone is on the left, it doesn't mean that they don't have personal interests, personal status and power, that they're trying to expand and preserve. 
And here's the rub. The rules of assembling status hierarchies don't go away when you're on the left. You can't get rid of them. You can't rule them gone. Because there are certain realities that can be preyed upon. And human beings think and relate to each other in certain ways which are predictable, political ways, which can be utilised to gain power and status over others. The only way to engage with it is to actually have a critical awareness of it and a way of thinking about it and then to work at it. You can't solve status hierarchy. All you can do is teach people to be literate about status and power and to trust them to be able to fight their corner. To trust them to be able to fight for equality in power and status because they see the tricks and see how hierarchies can be formed. And where they must be formed and must be navigated, there are situations in which you want to give some people power over you. Like, for example, a doctor to make decisions about what's in your health interest, realistically. Because let's be real, like, you know, we talk about informed consent in medical contexts, but realistically, most people just go with a doctor's judgment, don't they? They might do their own bit of research, might get second opinions from other doctors, but ultimately it comes down to who do you serve, who do you trust, who do you give power over you? And how do you decide to give that power over? That's what it is to live as a political human being. In this way, on the left, there is a problem. The problem is that the games of power and status don't disappear just because we're on the left. They're still there, and they're still played by people. And they can be played for the best of reasons. If you're convinced that your political ideology and your idea of how to approach the problems of a day is correct, and you're faced with people who disagree, and who are wrong, and who are dangerous and damaging, well, really, isn't it in the interests of everyone that they not be listened to? Isn't it in the interests of everyone that you have the power so you can do the right thing, and they don't get that power with which they'll damage the cause? Political agendas don't have to be inherently driven by selfishness. They still apply when there's perfectly good reasons to disagree. The problem is, the tools of, of competition are nasty. The tools of competition for status and power, they all work along fairly similar lines. And... You know, if it's a war for power, the saying all things are fair in love and war it might as well be the winner takes it all. In this way, the efforts to try and correct this hierarchy of status using these measures, they're fundamentally doomed to worse than failure. They're doomed to become something quite ugly as people, whether for noble or for unjust reasons, attempt to use the tricks of power, the tricks of status, to advance their own causes, to strengthen their own positions, to act politically in an environment where most people don't even... they don't even know there's a game taking place, they don't even know there's a fight unfolding. They're illiterate in the language of power and what's occurring. I'm going to give you some illustrations of what this looks like in practice.
I want you to imagine that you are some kind of social or political project. You're some kind of project that's out there doing things, right? You're making a difference in the world. Doesn't matter what on. Pick whatever you want. Think of one way you'd like to help the world and you make a group to do it. Now I want you to imagine that someone from a minority, any minority, could be gender, could be sex, could be race, could be class, any minority at all. They come up to you one day and they say, I'd like to get involved, but I'm hesitant to. I'm hesitant to because I don't feel like people like me belong with you. Now, what is your reaction to this? Your reaction is probably a decent human reaction to kind of drop what you're doing and go, oh my God, I'm so sorry. Why don't you feel like you can get involved? What, what systemic and structural barriers are in the way to your participation? How can we make you feel welcome? They say, well, actually, it's just, I notice you're talking about this kind of thing in a certain way. And it would be, it would be helpful to me if you weren't to do that. If you could just talk about it in this way instead. Now, what are you going to do here? Of course, you're going to want to do the right thing. So even though you don't personally see a distinction in the way you talk about these things, you agree. You agree. And you start talking about them in this new, better way. And the person says, great, I'm going to come on board then and get involved. Now, most of the time, that's totally fine. Most of the time, it is someone coming up and going, you know, listen, you've got this problem you don't know about because you've got blindness to positions in society other than your own. To deconstruct this, it's someone of a lower tier of status of some kind, whatever axis of oppression exists, coming up to you and saying, hey, listen, you are blind to the problems faced by people lower down the status pyramid than you, and here's what you should be doing to make accommodations for them. That's all great. Except what? What if they're not doing it with the best intentions? Because something happened in that little exchange. You gave power to someone. You gave them power. You said, well, I don't know my judgment on this is correct, but you seem to have the right judgment, so I will trust you. You gave them power. And if you're lucky, they've used it for good. But what if you're not? What if they're coming to you with a different intent? What if they're coming to your organisation not because they, you know, would like to get involved and they're generally concerned? What if they're looking at your organisation going, I think this is going places and I want a piece of that action. How do I convince these people to bring me in and give me a position of some influence? Well, I'm this minority. None of them are this minority. I know they're good people who want to amplify people from my minority, I will make myself a spokesperson for this minority and use it to increase my relative status in the group. Because if I just rocked up as, and we'll make it personal here, if I just rock up as, as a fellow member of the left and get involved, and later I mention, yeah, I'm non-binary, no power translation has taken place. Whereas if I rock up and go, listen, as a non-binary person, I should make you aware that you're doing things a bit wrong. But don't worry, I have the specialist lived experience that allows me to speak with authority on this issue that you cannot match. And I'll keep you right. That's the grounds for me to get in and get in preferentially. I am not saying this happens all the time, but I am saying it does happen. And I've seen it happen. And it's dangerous. 
because once it works, it can be leveraged again and again and again to advantage a personal position, whether for good or bad, to advantage a personal position. And the funny thing is, many of the people who do it, I am convinced, are genuinely nice, good people in their own heads who believe they're fighting a good fight because, as the quote goes, you cannot get a man to understand what his salary depends upon him not understanding. Power, status, wealth, pay, these things flow from a position of privilege, of being listened to, of having influence. Your self-concept is a form of currency, if you will. Your, your self-worth is valuable to you. And if your self-worth depends on being a person who's listened to, who's held up and seen to be this, um, you know, important representative, then you're going to fight and police that in your own way, using the tools you have to hand. And the tools you have to hand are to fight a political battle within the framework of equalities, within the framework of inclusion. Again, to be crystal clear, I am not saying this is always the case. I am not trying to say we shouldn't include people and shouldn't care about these issues. But I'm saying it's a problem. And it's doubly so a problem because... The other part that goes along with this, the part where most people are illiterate about the underlying status dynamics and how the language actually works, the stuff I've kind of glossed over and explained in as quick a way as I could through this episode, the people who don't get this, who are really clueless, if they're well-meaning and maybe a bit gullible and maybe a bit impressionable, they can get swept up in this. They can get swept up in going, well, I mean, we must have a problem then, mustn't we? They can get swept up in just wanting to do the right thing. And th this person is saying they're upset. And we don't want people to be upset. We're nice people. And political operatives, for this is what it is, to be human is to be political and to play the political game is to operate within the political sphere. They can weaponize that. They can weaponize that. And you can actually get to a situation of a kind of broken windows situation where someone walks up and goes, oh, that's a really nice window you've got there. Would be a shame if something bad happened to it. Don't worry, I'm an expert in glazing. Why don't you hire me to keep an eye on your window for you and make sure it stays unbroken? I'm not saying if you don't hire me that it's going to be broken. But I'm just saying there's a lot of window breakers around and you really need someone like me to keep them away. Protection racket, in other words. This is politics. A form of politics. It's a form of politics which exists on the left because it's preying upon people's desire to be good, to do the right thing, to dismantle hierarchy, but also preying on their ignorance of how hierarchy and status actually function, of how language is politicised, of what it actually does, and of where the real power dynamics in language lie. By preying upon this ignorance, and preying upon people's desire to do good, even for the best reasons, this kind of quite vicious status games, language games, creeps in 
and it becomes intensely toxic and draining. If everyone spends their time constantly worrying, constantly worrying, am I saying this the right way? Am I using the right language? Am I avoiding the wrong terms? I hope I don't cause offence. Please don't cancel me. It gets really horrible and really negative. And there are political operators who go into organisations who do this. They perform this role, this function. They drain from organisations and from groups of people to make themselves important, to give themselves authority, power, status, sometimes wealth and money. They play this game and they lash out at anyone who threatens their position and will weaponize this to do it. I have just explained how this works. They will come for me. If they hear this, they will come for me. Because I'm threatening their game by explaining what it is and how it works. And I'm sure that in the process of doing this, I've left plenty of openings. Plenty of ways for people to come in and go, that language is problematic. Oh, I'm afraid you're erasing this experience and perspective. I myself am a minority in two separate axes in terms of sexual attraction, in terms of gender identity. I'm also disabled, by the way. Not that it particularly matters. Because I don't really do what I do. The politics I do, they're not based on this kind of status game, you know? What I do, I don't do by going, oh, hey, as a non-binary person, because I'm not interested in that. And similarly, I don't find offence when people misgender me. I really don't. Not unless they're doing it intentionally. Not unless they're doing it with the intention of demeaning. Yeah? Not unless they're doing it to enforce a hierarchy on me. If someone in the street assumes I'm male, I'm a man, and says, oh, excuse me, mate, sorry, sir, or anything like that. I don't mind. They're not trying to put me down. They're not trying to make me feel odd and weird. Whereas if I say my pronouns are they, them, and someone goes out their way, them giving a statement, they're putting me down by erasing me, essentially, yeah? And worse still, if they, you know, call me names, like, you know, queer or, you know, a faggot or stuff like that. Excuse my words, but I did put a warning on this. If they use those words against me, then yeah, they're attempting to be demeaning and they can go fuck themselves. But despite being a minority, I too am vulnerable to this. I too can be exploited and used by this. I too can be, well, harassed, victimised, excluded, predated upon. I want to talk about Mark Fisher. I said at the beginning, this man, Mark Fisher, who wrote Exiting the Vampire Castle, made a bunch of mistakes. And he did. If you, if you bother to read his article, there's a bunch of stuff in it which is actually genuinely problematic. Not because I think it came from a bad place, but because I thought that he himself didn't have a fully fleshed out model of this. He didn't understand the game that he was walking into. He just knew that something was wrong and could identify some of the features of it and could sort of produce a bit of a theoretical criticism of it. But his biggest problem, as I see it, was that he was shining a light on people who would much rather stay in the dark, would much rather 
not have their gig challenged, not have their means of doing these things laid bare. And so they reacted strongly, kicked back against him, and took gullible people along with them. Mark Fisher tend intended to be do good. He did cause offence, he did fuck up in a few places, but so do we all. It's not worth killing him over, is it? But the danger that discussions like Mark Fisher's poses to people who make their crust or who fight their turf using this form of political action, using this form of predation on the politics of language, of the weaponization of minority status against well-meaning people, they could never stand for what he proposes. And so they never let him alone, never forgave him. And they stirred up, I think, the people who were impressionable, who do care about doing the right thing. They pointed out the genuine flaws in his work and used it to harass and hound him until eventually, unfortunately, he took his own life. I don't think he deserved that. Doesn't matter how much of an arsehole he was in whatever ways. No one deserves to die. Not when they're trying to do good. And I believe he was trying. However flawed his attempt. The reason I've gone into this is because I want you, the listener, to be aware that this exists. To watch out for it. And to recognise that this right here, this is the greatest impediment towards left organising today. It's taking the concepts of the left, the ideas of dismantling hierarchy, and using the flaws in analysis that the left holds, the inability to see things in terms of status and hierarchy and political games and language games, taking this ignorance and weaponizing it and engaging in a kind of politics of rhetoric and of, as I said, weaponization and marginalization, for want of a better word, to achieve political goals. And this shit runs exactly counter to every idea of solidarity that exists. And the problem is, the problem is, and the thing we will always have to wrestle with, is that we do need to dismantle hierarchy. We do need to pull it apart. We do need to include people. We do need to elevate marginalised voices. We do need to do all of these things, and we do need to take it seriously. But our efforts to do so when they are non-critical, and when they are not looking at people as political actors, are doomed to this kind of failure. And it's patronising to assume that Politics is only something that's done by white, cisgendered men, you know? It's patronising to assume that. It's patronising to assume that no one who is a minority can have these kind of, you know, I'll get ahead myself kind of intentions. I have met people who are bisexual, who are non-binary, who play these games and are very cynical about it at heart. I've met people who are bisexual, who are non-binary, or who are trans, or who are various different labels, who are totally sincere in believing they're doing the right thing, but they're prepared to use these games to get their way, to do the right thing, because they're effective, because they work. And the only way to stop it is to stop them being effective, is to stop them working, is to see people coming for what they're trying to do, for how they're treating others, for the games they're playing. And teaching people that sometimes it's actually fine to stand up and be critical and to actually question 
what's being thrown at you. Now, this is an ongoing thing, and it's as much a social dialogue as it is an individual one. There are words which are ableist, which we should never use, and I'm not going to sit here and repeat them all. There are also words which are arguably contributing to the way we think about ability and disability and the dichotomy there, which in an ideal society we'd want rid of. But the difference between these words is one set of these words are used to demean and put down in a venomous, low-status way. If you call someone a certain ableist word, you're basically describing them as subhuman. On the other hand, if you call someone stupid, that doesn't have the same inherent venom behind it. It can, contextually, if you call someone who clearly has learning disabilities stupid, you're an arsehole, right? And sometimes, yes, invisible disability being a thing, it can be hard to tell the difference, and so you should generally try and avoid using that language, maybe. But the language itself isn't inherently necessarily ableist, not as it's currently construed in our society. Ableist language, the explicit stuff, the stuff you definitely want to ban, it's the stuff that demeans. It's the stuff that when you use it, you're implicitly saying someone is subhuman, is low status, is further down. You know the word I'm talking about here, you have to. Same as the certain word that's you know, used to refer to black people. It's exactly the same way. It's said with the same venom, the same, you are lesser. Words like stupid, they don't have that. Nor does idiot. And yes, you could say that stupid and idiot have origins that are problematic, but in, in common parlance, how they're used and conceived of by people, we don't really have that. And yes, you can say, you can absolutely say, and I would 100% agree with you, that the language itself tells us we're in a society which is inegalitarian, but we're in a society that is inegalitarian and we have to talk to the people that are within it in a language of that culture. And while you can change how people think by changing words, you can only change how people think in terms of their status relations by changing words, by challenging words. There's an insight for you. You can change how people relate to each other in terms of status by making clear that some language is verboten, because that changes the way the status relationship functions and propagates itself, right? If you make it clear that you're not allowed to use racialized language to otherize um, and subjugate people, then over time, you're actually less able to do that, and so the status thing falls apart. That's not the same thing as using words like stupid or idiot, because that doesn't have that functional purpose. I hope you're understanding this, and, and at least seeing where I'm coming from. There's language which, when you use it, it performs a status function. It does something to your relationship to the other person in a structural way. And then there's language which doesn't. It's, it's insulting and offensive when you use it, but it doesn't have that same effect. This is the distinction. The language that causes the change, that must be excluded. The other language, yes, it can be problematic, it can be hurtful, we should probably see about minimising it and changing the way language is used over time. But it's not on the same scale. And at the end of the day, we have to be able to talk to other people in society. 
And so we can't, we can't sit there and police them when they use language which doesn't have any venom or rancor in it. We can't police them in that way if we want them to listen to us. Because remember, when you say you shouldn't use that word and they say why, if you can't give them a compelling and strong reason, you basically boil down to because it makes you a bad person. And this is the messiness of language, and this is a problem of politics, and this is our struggle. To understand that as political beings, as is our birthright, as every human is born to be to a lesser or greater degree, we must understand our political context and the medium through which it transpires, which is language. We must understand the strategies and structures in which we move as political beings and be able to see others coming with their predatory glares and recognise the victims and people who need our help and support. And it's only by gaining this knowledge that we're able to navigate these very difficult waters and to defend ourselves. The left has no map of what society must and should be. The right may have it drawn down to the atom. But we're forging out into new territory. We're building something new. And as I said before, when you go off map, there are dragons. And if we are to make some new place for us all to live, some new way to be, we must be prepared to fight those dragons and to recognise that they will always be there lurking in the areas of ambiguity and sometimes sometimes those dragons appear as our friends that's it for me this week i hope you enjoyed this black thoughts i'm looking forward to being cancelled off the back of it all i ask is that when i do get cancelled you ask who is cancelling me and why and make your judgment accordingly As usual, this episode is being made available a week earlier to patrons of the podcast. You can become a patron by going to patreon.com forward slash praxiscast. Otherwise, if you're enjoying it for free, please don't feel any obligation to come and support this. Do if you can afford it and if you like it, but just you listening is reward enough, and I hope it helps. As ever, the music, used for permission, is by RJD2. Take care. We'll see you next time.